Greetings, whale huggers, ocean lovers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Laren Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World and director of the documentary The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. That's the story of Granny, now on Vimeo On Demand. Thanks to Tahlequah, J35, and her unprecedented 17-day memorial service for her dead daughter, the world is watching the southern resident orcas and their battle to avoid starvation in the Salish Sea. An international team is assembled to give medicine and food to three-year-old Scarlet, that's J50, the underweight orca fighting to keep swimming alongside her family. And the biggest problem facing these 75 southern residents? Food supply. These orcas feed almost entirely on Chinook salmon, and we can't feed them all with the type of salmon cannon the Lummi Nation invented to try to feed Scarlet. When Washington's Elwha Dam was removed between 2012 and 2014, it was a game changer for the salmon and the ecosystem. Now the fight is on to breach four lower Snake River dams. Washington Governor Jay Inslee's task force wasn't talking about the Snake River dams until Tahlequah pretty much demanded that Inslee add it to the agenda. This may not save the Southern residents, but many people we've talked to believe that right now, this is their best shot. So what is the story behind Snake River? We called one of the people leading the fight to free the snake to find out. DamSense project coordinator, Kelly Iria works with retired civil engineer Jim Waddell to educate the public, elected officials, and key stakeholders about the impact of the four lower Snake River dams. Their motto? It just makes damn sense. Scan is brought to you once a month by our sponsors on Patreon.com, and we raise a few hundred more bucks. We'll be jumping to two episodes a month. We're not there yet. So today's special episode is brought to you by Tahlequah and Scarlet. Thanks, as always, to producer Rainbow and our Scanna team. And now, let's find out why these damn dams have to go. So, as I said, I'm coming at the whole Snake River Dam pretty much cold. I got my education at Superpod 6 a couple weeks ago. Can you talk me through mm-hmm. the story of the Snake River Dam and what needs to happen? Yeah, okay, so... How long of a story do you want? (laughs) Why we need to start breaching this. Okay. Um, So I'll I'll keep it like about five minutes then. That sounds great. Um, So there are... Any way you slice this dam, it needs to go. Economically, power generating wise, resource accumulation, and then especially the environmental impact. They were originally created back in the 40s through the 70s when there was a bunch of litigation about whether we should or shouldn't put the dams in. And by the 70s, they figured they were going to do it. And by 76, everything was done. Um, they were originally designed so that Lewiston, Idaho was going to be the large, the, a big port from the Columbia River upstream to Lewiston. And people were going to be able to barge all sorts of goods upriver. And then Lewiston would be this amazing everybody wants to go to Lewiston type of town. The numbers have never reached the projections from what the Corps uh, anticipated back when they were being done done on paper, Um, but nobody's really cared about that. They just continue to use them. So find uh, on the like irrigation navigation side, um, that's never been what it was supposed to be. And in the last 
18 years, it's actually dropped by 70 or 69%. Um, and I'll send you the document for that. Uh, so irrigation-wise, they're a travesty. People have started to use the railroads because it's more reliable and it's uh, economically feasible for the farmers. So on their own accord, they've been switching to the navigation side. So the dams don't really work for work well for what they were originally intended. On the power aspect, these four dams create the surplus power. BPA manages the surplus overload for the whole grid. So they look at all of the hydropower specifically, but they also have other sources, but hydropower is their big thing. And the lower Snake River dams help push the surplus ticket even higher. Uh, there's, I don't know, 46 dams, I think is what Bonneville Power oversees. And they, in their last statement in March, when they did their financial document that they have on their website, they're grossly overcharging for what the open market is because they have so much surplus power and they need to figure out some way to be able to pay for all of it. So they keep jacking up all of their prices. The PUDs that use them are now wising up and they're switching to the open market source because they can get their price. So to put it in context, uh, Bonneville Power currently is selling their rates at like $36 to $37 per megawatt hour. The open market is like 24 so there's a huge gap and people are seeing that and they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to switch to, you know, a different, I'm going to switch to the open market and just do that. So BPA is in this huge financial crisis and there's no way around it. Like you look at the financial report and things are just falling apart. And even Elliot Meinzer, who is the CEO, and this was the video that we tried to have play at Superpod, um, was saying that he is near to panic you know that was whole access from nonchalance to panic and he says i don't want to make it seem like i'm panicking i'm not panicking but i'm in a very very close state of urgency uh and so he's you know he really wants to do something dramatic and he goes on to say you know we need to have some immediate action done right now bpa funds 92 percent of the uh, lower Snake River dams because the dams were meant for hydropower and navigation. So the hydropower side is um, is where BPA comes into for, for the funds of the Snake River dams. Um, if you look at their graphs, there's this Columbia River inner tie, and you can see how much power is being produced from uh, wind energy, from solar energy, from the nuclear power plant, and from hydropower all in Washington. And it's all like hydropower is exceedingly the highest one that gets generated. The interesting thing to note though is on that same graph, there's this little line that says how much uh, the, the market can hold. And if it's over that, then we've got surplus. So it's the demand, that's what it is, it's the, the demand. And if the hydropower or any of the power is above that, then that is surplus power and we end up getting to sell it on the open market or to whomever. Um, but most of the time we've been selling that at a loss because we've been selling it to California. California comes into play where in the last 10 years, they have done a really good job of making solar power kind of their primary source. Originally, well not originally, but back in the day, they were buying power, hydropower from Washington state. But as they started using solar power, now they don't need the hydropower so much. And so they quit buying it, which means the prices went up because there was less demand it got to the point even where you can look at their website and it, it like has a little stock market uh, 
graph, not graph, that little line with text that runs across the bottom that tells you how much the price is at any given point. And back in it was June, April or June, we watched it get as high as $26, which means negative $26, which means we were paying California $26 to take our power. So we have a surplus amount of power. There's so much power in the area and most of it's due to hydropower. So it's in BPA's best interest to get rid of these four dams because they're not doing anything and they're just helping to generate surplus power. So BPA would save themselves millions of dollars if they were to get rid of these four dams. Uh, that's the economic side. I'm kind of doing like top level things. Yeah. So feel free to ask questions or we can dig into stuff. So you know, okay, that was the power. Um, the environmental aspect is this is where, you know, that was kind of the focus of Superpod. The dams themselves, people say that they keep, you know, that it's 99% survival rate. And they're talking about the smoke getting through the dams. Be that as it may, and I don't think those numbers are right. If that was the case, why are the like salmon still so severely impacted? Uh, the the problems lie in multiple different areas. Um, yeah, the all four dams do have fish ladders and removable spill wires. Like, I know at least three of them have removable spill wires, and all four of them have some sort of fish mitigation to get them over the dams. Um, but even still, we're watching the numbers not recover. The other problems are in the reservoirs because those reservoirs increase the temperature, which makes the salmon less likely to migrate upriver because the water temperatures are too warm. It also can get to the point where they burn to death, and even though they're in water, they get too hot and they die. Uh, and then the other problem is that because we've made reservoirs, we've created an environment that favors the lake fish and not the river fish. And salmon are river fish, and their predators are lake fish. So we basically create an environment where their predators are doing great and they themselves are doing awful. And so uh, big mouth bass are coming in and they're eating the smolts. And so the little juvenile dudes can't survive long enough to actually become adults. And even if they can make it over the dams, they die in the reservoirs. And then the adults make it back and the water's too warm for them to migrate upstream. And so they just hang out in the deeper waters where it's cooler and end up either missing the mark or dying for other reasons or just, you know, being too fatigued to make it upriver. So those are the main points in a nutshell in eight minutes. So <laughs> nice. And yeah. can you talk about the fight to breach this dam so that the salmon can come through? Yeah. So this goes on for decades. Um, the dams, nobody really, I mean, the core wanted to build them, but, the general public who knew what was going on were all saying it was a bad idea. The scientists said, if you build the dams, we're going to destroy the environment. Now, in 2002, the Army Corps did a seven-year study and spent $34 million and came up with four alternatives, specifically looking at the impact of the dams on the environment, hence the environmental impact statement. Um, and the four alternatives they came up with, one, doing nothing and seeing what life had, Two was doing fish barging where they moved the fish up and down. Three was doing fish mitigation, such as getting uh, spill ladders and spill wires and kind of doing stuff on the dam so that fish can passage through it. I think it was fish passage improvements. That's what it was called. And then number four was actually breaching the dams. And of their seven-year study, they determined that the fourth alternative was the most likely to recover 
the salmon, and that alternatives two and three were actually worse than doing nothing. So that happened. That report came out and worse they sent than it nothing to is not really the, an appealing option. Yeah. Uh, you mean, sorry, <laughs> where, where Wor- is it? Worse than nothing is not really the most appealing of options. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so we actually did two and three because we're America and <laughs> have to dress stuff. So, um, and there's even a little paragraph that says just that um, in the EIS on the summary section. I can send you that too. Um, and so since then, um, what happened is basically the core, uh, I forgot his rank, the guy that actually got to say, okay, this is what we're going to do, didn't read the report. And so he just said, this is what we're going to do. And hence the current situation we have now, because what we try to do was to do both fish barging and passage improvements, which have failed as was suggested in the EIS. And so it's just become this large political issue, which is to the demise of the killer whales, because what's happened is the politics um, are misinformed and think that the dams produce viable energy, that people are actually, livelihoods are depending on these dams. Oh yeah, that's the other part of my missed, um, the irrigation side of it. There's only 14 dams that we know of that are using the Snake River as irrigation and their pipes can easily be extended once the rivers are back down or the river is back down to its original flow. So on the Snake River, when it gets back to its normal, you know, we've reached the dams, uh, then we just have to extend those irrigation pipelines and they just continue to use the water. So they're not really out for anything. And yet they think if we breach the dams, they're going to be completely out of their livelihood because that's what they've been told. We actually went to Ice Harbor and they have a little uh, welcome center that you can go into and you watch these little videos and they give you this propaganda that says these four dams are, uh, are flood control dams, which is not true at all. They're run of river dams, which means they can't be a flood control option because a run of river, the water comes in at the exact same rate that it leaves. So you can't withhold any portion of water. So it doesn't work as a flood control. Oddly enough, they even the video said that it was flood control to prevent an annual flood that would flood Richland. And if you look at a map, the Snake River and the Columbia meet 10 miles downstream of Richland, which means Richland would get hit with a flood that was so large that it would have flooded 10 miles upstream of the Columbia. So I don't really see where they get that logic because that's a huge flood to flood something 10 miles upstream, a different river. So they've been missing. Yeah. So there's a, there's a bit of propaganda and I actually have that video too, so I can show it to you. Who's the propaganda Um, from? That's from the Corps of Engineers. We went. Cause that's the baffling to me. Like who, who is advocating to keep this at this point? So at this point, it's several of the politicians and the Army Corps. The Corps is really just too lazy. Um, they should be advocating against it because the fiscal responsibility of the Corps is such that if a project is beyond a benefit, so if the benefit-to-cost ratio is below one, then they have to stop the project. And the economic analysis that we did, I think, in 2016, 2014 or 2016, showed that the BCR, the benefit-to-cost ratio, cumulatively of the four dams is 15 cents to the dollar, which means 
for $1 invested, we get a 15 cent return. So it's exorbitantly below the one that the court needs. Wow. So, wow. Um, yeah, so that fact alone should be breaching these dams because the cost, the benefit is absolutely awful. We are wasting so much money and we're getting ready to waste millions more because they're over 50 years old now. So the dams each have six turbines. Oddly enough, they were designed actually with three turbines. And once they put them in, the water was spilling over the uh, spillways and over the dams so quickly that it was causing too much dissolved gas and was completely destroying all of the animals in the water. And so they had to add in an additional three turbines per dam. So right off the get-go, they were a terrible creation. And they needed to spend a couple thousand dollars to get it, you know, so that it was decent. Um, but anyway, now, so they're now over 50 years old. Each, yeah. Now, can you, I, I just wish you could tell me pretty much exactly what you said in our emails about uh, Inslee's task force. Because from so, a distance from Canada, it looks very exciting that you've yeah. got this task force that's out there trying it to do something does. about the orcas now. It looks so exciting, but isn't it interesting to note that the governor only made appearances during a live feed and that while this has been going on, he hasn't been around in the other conferences or the other meetings which we've been going to. And the only time he came in was at the beginning of the first meeting when they were airing it. And then he calls in while they're streaming the event online. And I thought those were kind of an interesting thing to note. Um, but really the task force is they have a lot of experts and a lot of different areas, but those experts either aren't willing or haven't read reports that have been done. And so their idea is to reinvent the wheel and to create you know, the next study. But we've been studying this. We already did, like I said, in 2002, the Corps of Engineers did a seven-year study. So that means they started in, what, 95, 1995. And since then, we continue to do studies because we've had various biops been court-ordered or been sued upon and thus had to be redone. And so people have continued to study this thing to death, literally. Like, the animals are dying because we just continue to study. And since the creation of the ORCA task force, you go and listen to the comments and everybody says a lot of congratulations. I'm so glad we're here. Thank you for all your hard work. But nobody has actually decided to do anything. They just keep saying, we're going to have a meeting so that we can talk about what we want to talk about so that we can have another meeting to talk about what we did talk about and then plan what we're going to talk about next. And it's just nobody has actually said, this is what we need to do. Here's an actionable plan that can be delivered to and acted upon in X amount of days. And I know they think that that's what they're creating. But like I said, the core did this 18 years ago, or 16 years ago in 2002 and said that we have an actionable plan. Here are four alternatives that you can do. We tried alternatives two and three. That didn't work. Trying alternative one now is pointless. And alternative four is the only thing left to do. So it really, I mean, the ORCA task force is like, too many cooks in the kitchen. They've got too many people who want to just continue their, I don't know. It's, it's pointless. It's like what I said, um, the, the ORCA task force is synonymous with being in school and having your teacher give a class project and say, you know, it's due at the end of the semester. 
and everybody procrastinates until two weeks before. And then they come up with a document and say, here it is. And that's, that's kind of what we're looking at with the Orca Task Force. Like, if they do anything besides dam breaching, it's going to be too little. And at this point, if they only do dam breaching, it won't be enough. But if they don't do dam breaching, it's not going to work. Can you just do a, a brief look at the other issues? Because you did a lovely job with that in the email to me. Yeah, yeah. So the other issues are vessel noise and toxicity. Vessel noise is with the assumption that there is so much other activities uh, in the water that it's messing with the orca's ability to use their echolocation to find food. But you need to have food to find in order to have some sort of disruption. And I haven't seen any reports, granted I haven't really looked, but I haven't seen any reports that say vessel noise is scaring the fish away. And so by trying to keep the orcas or the, the vessels away from the orcas, like, sure, they can have five more hours of forage time. But if there's nothing to forage for, they can have a full 24 hours of foraging time and they'll still come up with nothing. So the problem there is not the fact that there is noise. It's the fact that there is no food to be found. The other issue is toxicity. And that gets a little bit more complicated because you have to kind of follow a train of thought. The toxicity is accumulated in the animal because of the food that they eat. And we all have heard of mercury poisoning when you eat too much fish and the orcas are no less resilient to that. They get different toxins from the, the fish that they eat because they're just lower on the food chain. It's a biology thing. Um, so they eat all this fish, they get all this toxin, but they're building their blubber. And as long as their blood, blubber remains thick, they generally don't have any problems with this. Once they start to starve, then their body needs extra calories to burn, and so it burns their metabolism, which leaches all of the toxins that the blubber has held onto into their bloodstream, which they then die of toxicity. But it's almost like you get bit by a shark, and the cause of death is the bleed out, even though it was a shark that bit you. Um, it's kind of the same thing. Like They died of toxicity, but they only died of toxicity because they didn't have enough fish to keep them fat and healthy. And you can compare that with the transient orcas who are now coming in in droves in the area because of all of the sea lions. So transients are different than residents in that transients eat mammals. And there is a surplus of mammals now in the area. And so we've been watching the transient orcas actually increase. They're doing just fine. I think the last report I heard was that there are 20 new death, uh, new births in the last four years for the transients when the residents haven't had a viable offspring in three years. So... That's kind of cool to know. And the transients are eating um, uh, pinnipeds, and the pinnipeds eat the fish. So you're actually higher up on the trophic level, which means transients are more toxic than the residents. And yet we're not seeing toxicity contamination in the residents. I'm sorry, in the, in the, in the transients. They're fat and happy and doing just fine. So that's where the toxicity level. And again, you point that back to the lack of food. If we had more food for the orcas, then they'd be able to stay fat and happy and the toxicity wouldn't into their bloodstream and they'd be fine. So both issues, while they're like the band-aid effects to the bigger issue of having lack of prey. Okay. Um, I've just got to ask you one more question and then I've got to hit the road. Yeah. Participation. What can people do? So what, what do we need people to do? do hand, handwritten letters mean so much more or phone calls which means so much more than just clicking links 
or spreading the word on social media. Like don't not do that. But if you want to have something that's like more impactful, a handwritten letter, like one handwritten letter is equivalent of like, geez, 30 or 40 clicks on anything you can do online. Um, so to any key officials, Governor Inslee, any of the, uh, the governor in Idaho, the governor in Oregon, but Inslee really, since this is his Oregon task force and he's kind of taken ownership of the issue, um, a handwritten letter to him calling his staffers and let, telling them that they can breach in 2018. That's the other crazy thing is that in order to breach, everything is already in place. They just need the order. Like Inslee just needs to call the Corps of Engineers and say, hey, we need to do this. But they can do it in 2018 but our window of opportunity is closing. So a handwritten letter is great. A uh, phone call is great. And I forgot to mention, because this is also really important. <laughs> um, the reason our window of opportunity is closing is that if we start breaching in, in the winter, then we can have two dams down and the river will have been sufficiently recovered enough so that when the spring salmon runs begin, the salmon have 70 miles of free uh, river would only breach two dams this winter and it needs to be two dams. Like we can't do more because it has to, the river has to recover a little bit more. But if we don't start in the winter, then that window of opportunity closes and we have to wait until the following winter to do it. And by that point, I, it does not look good. <laughs> so if we can't breach, basically we can't breach while the salmon are migrating. It has to be in the off season, which is this, the fall or the winter, the winter season. Um, so we have to tell everybody to push the message that we can breach in 2018 and we need to breach in 2018. All of the appropriations are there. All of the money is already able to be found um, through BPA because they fund 92% of it and they can take a fish credit, which means they'll get, you know, it's like a tax write-off. Uh, the core already has the ability to do it. They've got everything they need to do it. And they even have the um, reasoning and the NEPA documents because of the EIS so anybody can Canadian or U.S. make phone calls, write letters, and tell them they have to breach in 2018 or it's going to be too late. Awesome. Thank you so much. I've just got to race out because we can get rain in a boat right, out, right now to go check out the orcas. Sweet. Have fun. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Yeah. Bye. I'll talk to you later. You too. <laughs> Bye. If you'd like to get involved with DamSense, please check out our show notes and find out who you can write to and how you can reach them. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. I'm Mark Young, and this is the Scana Podcast. That's S-K-A-A-N-A. -A -A. Spread the word. Subscribe on iTunes. Maybe give us a nice review there to help people find us. Visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material, including ideas for how you can make waves for orcas, oceans, the environment, and 100-year-old whales. Also, subscribe to our newsletter on scana.org and our new magazine on medium.com, and we'll send you updates on our upcoming episodes and news about orcas and oceans. If this show doesn't work for you, I'm Bob McDonald, and thank you for listening to Quirks and Quirks. And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales, please check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in paperback, ebook, audio edition at audible.com. Heck, give us enough money on Patreon. I don't know. I'll come over to your house and read you a few chapters. That's patreon.com. And please subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes with guests like Julia Barnes, writer and director of the amazing documentary Sea of Life, a special tribute to one of my heroes, Sharkwater revolutionary Rob Stewart, 
And coming up next, author of Of Orcas and Men, What Killer Whales Can Teach Us, David Nywert. David is also an expert on the alt-right in the age of Trump. To volunteer to help us out, please contact us at scanna.org. Thanks again for listening.